uh, shared with the children this morning uh, finds its rootedness in this very story. That Jesus was asked, of all the laws, what is the most important? And today we see a continuation of the story of that very law being established. And what we find is uh, that this kind of love, well, it's not always safe and warm and fuzzy, and it's uh, sometimes dangerous and unsettling. I heard a preacher once say that we uh, encourage folks to come to church and to find comfort and sanctuary, and, but what we ought to do sometimes is give them hard hats, flare guns, and life jackets on the way out the door. And truly, there's a wildness to God's love that I want to hinge on today. But I want to read this story first. Moses said to the Lord, See, you have said to me, Bring up this people. But you have not let me know whom you will send with me, Lord. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now, if I have found favor in your sight, God, show me your ways, so that I may know you and find favor in your sight. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. And he said, God says, My presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, and I your people, unless you go with us? And in this way we shall be distinct, I and your people, from every people on the face of the earth. And the Lord said to Moses, I will do everything that you've asked. For you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. And Moses said, Show me your glory, I pray. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and will proclaim before you the name the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But, he said, you cannot see my face, for no one shall see me and live. And the Lord continued, See, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock, and while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take my hand away, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. So we've all seen those cartoons, and maybe we've even drawn them ourselves at some point, of people stuck on a deserted island. You know what it looks like. It's the person standing on that hill of sand, a palm tree, hanging above, offering no shade to the hot sun that beats down above, maybe shark fins circling the island and those M-shaped birds flying off in the, in the distance. Imagine that you're that person this morning. And if you could have one thing on that deserted place that would get you through, or you knew that would get you through, what would that one thing be that you would want? What will it be? Will it be water, food, shelter, a boat, a phone, a hammock, a good book. Now let's take that scenario, if we will, and see if we can't make it fit in the wilderness story of Exodus. Israel has been stranded in the desert, if you were with us last week, on their way to the promised land, and they feel vulnerable. And we can ask ourselves, what, well, what did Israel most need in that 
difficult time, what would our answer be? And we know what that answer would be, right? And so did they. It's God, of course. They need God to get through this time. And that's where we were last week with Israel. But things were going on in the mountains that they did not yet know. You see, Israel had experienced a moment when they had lost what they most needed, or so they thought they had. So they kind of freaked out. <laughs> Worse than Tom Hanks did when Wilson floated away from him, when he was deserted. Israel had come to know that they need God, but now that God is gone, or thinking that God is gone, they make a mistake. And you may recall that in their panic, they attempted to create a God of their own by molding gold into a golden calf. And that quickly made things worse because what they didn't know was that God was not gone. In fact, God, even though they could not see it, was very near watching every bit of it. And it was a moment in the drama that reminds us of those funny videos where children are caught doing that thing they shouldn't be doing, like, I don't know, cutting their hair or putting that permanent marker on their face and the parents video in it and they don't know it for a while. That's where we were last week. Israel had not known this was the case, but Moses knew. And today Moses has come down from that mountain to let them know what's been going on up there. Now we didn't read this part of the story that I'm going to share with you today, but it's important. Because if we left last week feeling relieved that Moses had convinced God to withhold God's anger and to end everything because of the mistakes... Well, things happen after, make, after that that make it clear that, well, God wasn't quite over it yet. In truth, things turn from being okay, I wouldn't have called them good, just okay. They come from being okay to really bad. Because what we haven't read today is that Moses came down the mountain loaded for bear. Now, loaded for bear, I learned this week, has its origins back in the old frontier days. And what you could do in those days where muskets were used for protection and hunting, you could load down a musket with as much powder as it would hold, and you did that when things were dangerous. So when they were entering bear country, you loaded your musket up with all it could possibly take, and you were loaded for bear. Well, let's just say Moses came down the mountain loaded for bear. He comes stomping down the mountain, prepared and ready to unleash maximum anger on Israel. And he does. He lashes out. He smashes the stone tablets with the commandments on the ground. He makes them drink the ground down gold powder from the calf. Lives are taken by sword. And it is an absolute dark day in the life and the history of Israel. But then the very next day, Moses goes back to God to make atonement for, by offering himself his own life for their mistakes. Oh, what a great sin these people have committed, he said. Now please forgive their sin. But if not, blot me out of the book you have written. And then in what I find a truly unsettling passage in the Bible, God says, no. Whoever sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. Each person is responsible for their own sins. And when the time comes for me to punish, I will punish them for their sins. Now go. Lead my people up to the place I promised. And my angel will go before you. 
In other words, no atonement. They will get what they think they most need. I'm going to give them the land that I've promised them and and I've promised you I will do my part. But I, God, will not be going there with you. What a complicated and a conflicted story this is. And if you're like me, you find that these stories like this, well, maybe more familiar than we'd like them to be. There's a gritty nature to this story. There's a gritty nature of Moses and Israel's walking precariously along with God. Flurries of emotions and outbursts, violence. Too much reflects what we see in the world today, and it's unsettling to see this. And I don't like seeing these stories. I don't like seeing God and Moses participating, our heroes of faith participating in this way. I want to see folks like that rise up above it. Show us a different way. Life gets hard. Our faith wanes. We see things that upset us. But I want to see God and Moses keeping things together more so than we see here. But we're not unfamiliar with life and what it can look like in the aftermath of our missteps. Things like fear and anger, they creep in on us. And even knowing all that we know about faith, things will get the best of us. I had a mentor early on in ministry who was being pressed by someone he told me and he could feel his emotions rising and he wanted to to lash back and before he did that he says, friends, let's take a break because you're tapping into that part of me that's not saved yet. (laughs) In other words, I'm trying to be a good Christian right now but I'm about to reach my limits. Think with me for just a minute. How many of our struggles are ancient ones? Repeated ones? All too familiar ones? How many of our own mistakes are old friends to us that just keep hanging around, never seeming to to go anywhere? How often does fear and anger and vulnerability motivate us above other things. That God has chosen to live in a relationship with we human beings is an astounding thing. And it's a legitimate question sometimes to ask, what in the world keeps God hanging in there with us? Likewise, it's for similar reasons, it's fair to ask, what in the world keeps us hanging in there with one another? Jesus was asked by Peter, or how many times must we forgive? As many as seven times, Jesus? Jesus says, oh, not seven times, but I tell you, 77 times. So I suppose that when we see or participate or experience the messes that come our way in life, we have today's story to turn to. And here we see that the work of healing and the work of mending is hard. It may not always be for the faint of heart following God, but it reveals that we must be persistent in leaning towards the promised land that we are also headed towards. No, we're not headed towards the geographical place that Israel is headed to, but we are moving towards the fullness of God's peaceful kingdom. We have in our sights a vision out there that's not here yet of that peaceful kingdom that Isaiah spoke of, 
the wolf shall live with the lamb and the leopard shall lie down with the calf and the calf and the lion and the fatling together. The little child shall lead them. Later on, he says, they will not hurt or destroy on my holy mountain for the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. My soul wants to drink those words in today. I want that world, but I don't see it yet, not in fullness. We have not reached this place, but this is where we're going. There will be bumps in the road, but this peaceful kingdom, it is what keeps us leaning forward and forgiving one another, and we will need God every step of the way. And that's why we need the gospel of Christ, isn't it? So one might think that when Moses had saved Israel's hide from further wrath, including his own, that he had done all he could do. And one might say to themselves, let's not push our luck, Moses. Just staying alive is enough. Even if God isn't going with us, at least we're alive. Moses knew better, thankfully. Moses knew that he had saved physical and corporal life together, but he knew that without God, there was no future in the promised land. So he tells God that I won't take Israel without you unless you come with me. And then just like that, we go from one of the most chilling moments and passages to one of the loveliest and most comforting there is. My presence will go with you. And I will give you rest. Again, what a strange, complicated, confusing, wonderful, and troubling story all at once. It's more predictable. God is wilder than we'd like to know sometimes. Don't get me wrong. God is the Holy One. But the nature of God is, there's a wildness to it. It will not be controlled. God can seem to judge and forgive all in the same time. So what does this say about God? The Holy One who so quickly and drastically changes from vengeance to mercy and back again. What does it say to us about the flawed heroes of our faith like Moses, Jacob, Samson, and King David? Deeply flawed folks at times. I wish it were not so, but it is. And it can be true about you and I as well. So our story today, it ends in a remarkable scene. Moses, who has already successfully convinced God not only to lead Israel to safety, but now to go with them, has one more request. He just doesn't stop. And he asks to see God face to face. God refuses this, saying that it would, he would not be able to live if he were to do that. That was a, a common theme, that you couldn't look upon the face of God and live. But God has an alternative. And God says, here is a place beside me. I will put you in the cleft of the rock. And I will cover you with my hand until you pass by. And then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back. But my face will not be seen. Why is this? I speculate, but maybe the meaning of this is that when we're in the midst of things, that God is perhaps out of our sight, out of our vision, and we can't see it. 
But like that divine hand touching our face or covering us, blocking our vision, after that uncertain moment, it is lifted and we see that God has gone before us and we can follow. I recall this week a scene from the play called Green Pastures. I've never seen the play, but I'm aware of a scene where God looks down upon earth in all its situations. Things are not good. God is dismayed. Enter Gabriel, horn tucked under his shoulder, coming to God, seeing God in distress, knows that God is troubled and asks, is it time for me to blow the trumpet? And God says, no, no, not yet. Don't touch that trumpet. God keeps worrying and looking down, but eventually Gabriel unsettles, asks God, well, what is the plan? Will you send someone, one of us, to tend to things? How about another David or another Moses? Maybe Isaiah or Jeremiah. We have a lot of great prophets up here. And without looking back, God says, I'm not going to send anyone. This time, I'm going myself. Now, this is a fictional account, of course, but as we enter a season of Advent this year, isn't this the message Gabriel comes to Mary with? God is coming. God's wisdom in Christ is that we have been given to lead our church, our lives, our families, all our relationships as best as we can and as flawed as we can be in the midst of it. But we do not go ahead alone. We have been given the Holy Spirit as an abiding presence, and it refuses to leave us alone. And along the way, we succeed and we fail, and some days are harder than others. But the promise God gave Moses persists with us today. My presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. Friends in church, sometimes we are tempted to try and look like we have it all together. And that that's what the face, that's the face that we must show others. But it does not hurt to show the world how desperately we need God's mercy and grace. If we accept God's mercy and grace, it is only right to acknowledge why we need it, right? And if we will, then we are ready to overcome and transform and redeem a world that needs mending at times. The Methodist preacher, Reverend Dr. Thomas Lane Butt, once wrote that we all learn at the University of Adversity. But he says we forget this. He said most of us have a well-developed theology for good times in life. And we like to give praise when things are good. It's evidence that God is with us. But we must equally know where God is when our world falls apart. And when we face tragedy beyond any human explanation. This year, our world has faced the unimaginable. Things are happening that we either thought could not happen or refused to believe would happen. But they have happened. Hospitals have been to their capacity. Creation is stressed. Many suffer emotional crisis at this time. Protests ring out in our streets, and there is a wildness in our day that we do not always understand. Yet we have a God who is up for the challenge. And we can trust that God would help us as a church to mend all things as we move forward. Wendell Berry often saw God in nature, as we all do. And I think that's because there is a wildness in nature that reflects the wildness of God. God. 
It's wilderness for a reason, right? Nature can both and at the same time awe us and terrify us. And what a wonderful description of God. Anyway, I remembered a poem he wrote that reminded me of this. It's printed in his book called This Day, Collected and New Sabbath Proems. He says there are two healings, nature's and ours in nature's. Nature's will come in spite of us, after us, over the graves of its wasters, as it comes to the forsaken fields. The healing that is ours in nature's will come if we're willing, if we're patient, if we know the way, if we will do the work. My father's father, whose namesake you are, told my father this. He told me, and I'm telling you, the invitation today for you and for me is to choose to do the work, to participate with God and Christ in the mending that we need in our world. We will not tame God and we will not tame life, but we can be part of the mending. Reverend Butts, I want to finish with this, shared an account at a church where he was a guest preacher. The offer had been taken, the choir was singing their last song, and he was about to be introduced when an usher brought a note forward that had been taken out of the collection plate. The usher handed it to the pastor, and the pastor handed it to him, and he read it. It said, I have nothing to offer today but the hope for a better tomorrow. That just about says it all, he says. Not only for whoever wrote the note, but for the rest of us whose recent life experiences may leave us feeling and having the very same thought. Surely, life has a way of stripping us down and revealing things that we wish were not true. But today, we remember that there is something more powerful that cannot disqualify us. That we have a God who refuses to give up on us, we have a Savior in Christ who offers redemption, grace, and mercy. And we have the Holy Spirit that reminds us that we are never alone. And that is why sometimes it is okay to feel like I've got nothing to offer today but hope for a better tomorrow in church. We have everything we need to make tomorrow better than today. We only need to ask, will we? Will you? Will I? Thanks be to God. Amen.